So before I dive into my topic, I'd just like to ask from the audience, a little audience participation, why do we meditate? What's the point? What, what is the purpose? What do we hope to accomplish? Shout them out. Heidi. Mm-hmm. So we can release emotional knots in meditation. Okay. Other thoughts? Meredith? Okay, so meditation allows us to experience our life, our feelings more deeply, more intensely. Great. Why do we meditate? So meditation allows us to center, to relax, to connect with ourselves. Christy, you said? Uh, A different perspective. It gives us a different perspective on life, on self. Life, self. Okay, (laughs) we're closing in on the three gateways to liberation here. So I would like to propose that the reason we meditate, all of those things may come in greater or lesser degree, but the primary reason we meditate is liberation. What we are striving for, what the Buddha set forth in his instruction for meditation was this is a way to liberation. Liberation from what? More audience participation. What do you think? What are we striving to be liberated from? Suffering. Suffering. Ding! (laughs) Another characteristic, one of the gateways of liberation. Okay? So, liberation in our context, in our flavor of Buddhism, is often referred to as liberating insight. Insight meditation, liberating insight. Okay, so there's some connection. And the means to liberating insight is vidya in Pali, the ancient language that most of our early Buddhist scriptures came to us in is Pali, the Pali language. Vija is often translated as wisdom, but the core meaning is vision. Vija and vision have the same great granddaddy. And Vija can be construed as or understood as clear seeing or seeing knowing. So it's not seeing with the eyes, it's seeing with our understanding how things actually are. And that seeing, that wisdom, is sufficient to liberate. Okay? The opposite of that wisdom, that clear seeing, is avijja, which is usually translated as ignorance or sometimes delusion. And I'm going to circle back to that in a minute. So from the blurb on the website and the flyer, and if you were here last week, you heard Misha give a wonderful introduction to the three gateways, the three characteristics. Um, The flyer reads, Insight meditation practices investigate three primary characteristics of mind and body. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, 
and emptiness or not-self. These three traditional marks of existence are called doors to the deathless. They serve as our gateways to liberation. So last week we had kind of an overview, the whole umbrella of the, the broad topic. And tonight I'm going to focus on the impermanence component of that. But the three characteristics are not really separate things. They're like three sides to a triangle. They form one whole, one unity. So we can sort of tease them apart to look at different qualities or, or flavors, perspectives on how suffering arises by analyzing them somewhat separately. The three characteristics, the blurb says, are characteristics of mind and body, but I would like to propose that they are actually characteristics of everything, of all that is. And once we penetrate any one of those characteristics fully, we see reality as it really is. And that is sufficient to liberate. Reality as we know it in some of the texts is referred to as the five aggregates. It's not a class on the five aggregates, but I wanted to bring it up because um, what gave me the title for this talk is a lovely passage from the Diamond Sutra. And in the passage, the five aggregates are referred to as all this fleeting world. So everything that can be perceived. And the traditional simile for the aggregate of feeling, one of the five, is a water bubble. And the passage is, Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And I find that very inspiring. This is a very sweet, poetic, but I think compelling description of impermanence. And it says, all this fleeting world is no more permanent than any one of these similes. And we look around, we go, well, wrong. You know, I've been here 61 years, and that table's been here as long as I've been coming here. You know, so there is this perception of permanence. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of my great heroes in terms of Buddhist texts, has a terrific quote that I wanted to share with you about the relationship here to the five aggregates. In some ways, the ultimate source of all of our suffering and bondage is ignorance. It weaves a net of three delusions around the aggregates. The notions that they are permanent, that they are the source of true happiness, and that they are the ground of a self that persists through time. So these are the nets of delusion. The wisdom needed to break the spell of these delusions is the insight into the nature of the five aggregates as impermanent, suffering or unsatisfactory, and not self, 
or empty. Through clear perception of these characteristics, delusion vanishes and a vast experience of liberating peace is realized. I find that inspiring as well. So here he presents that the notion of permanence is actually the source of the suffering. So a lot of times when we think about impermanence, we go, oh, impermanence, bummer. You know, it's everything I want is just... You know, well, I I listened to a Dhamma talk earlier this year, and the woman was right on the money. She said, well, not always. What about when you're standing in an elevator and someone bigger than you is standing on your toe? Yes, it's impermanent, right? So impermanence is not all bad. There would be no growth, no change, no improvement if there were no impermanence. So we have kind of a mindset to um, relate to impermanence with this slightly negative, slightly aversive bias. And we meditate, um, we cultivate this path in order to dispel the delusion. And the cultivation of the path takes care of the dispelling it's like sun burning off the fog. You don't have to do anything about getting rid of the fog. The sun just burns it off. So the, the process of penetrating the delusion is really, in some ways, not something that we do. It's something that we set up auspicious conditions such that it occurs. And I use the word cultivate here. It's a, it's a translation for the word bhavana, which is the instruction that we're given for the fourth noble truth that we are supposed to cultivate the path, the eightfold path. And this cultivate, this bhavana, is very closely related to the cultivation that a farmer does. A simile in the texts is that this cultivation is like a farmer cultivating the crops, taking care of the planting and the watering and the weeding and doing all that is necessary for the crop to ripen. The farmer cannot make it happen It ripens in its own time. It's an organic process. It's inevitable, but we can't make it happen. We set up the conditions that allow it to happen. So that's a lot of highfalutin rhetoric. How do we actually practice mindfulness of impermanence? So how do we do the cultivating? It's not a lot different from regular old samatha vipassana, mindfulness of the breath. Fundamentally, we watch closely just what is happening right here, right now. So I was trying to give some hints and guidance in the guided meditation, I was a lot more talkative than usual, and some of you were probably going, oh, I wish you were, I don't know. 
But I wanted to get you to pay attention not just to the breath, but to the arising and falling of everything that was arising and passing. It takes patience. And it takes compassion. The mind, in the Buddhist formulation of things, is an organ of perception. It's one of the sense doors, and we sense thoughts coming in. In many ways, we have no more control over the thoughts that enter the sense door of the mind than we have over the noise, or the breeze, or the itch, right? The thoughts come. Would that we could control the thoughts, right? But we can't. So the purpose of mindfulness of impermanence is to accept reality exactly as it is with kind attention. And I want to add, we are part of that reality. So part of the cultivation of compassion in mindfulness of impermanence practice is compassion for ourselves exactly as we are right now. However much we wish we were different, we are who we are with all of our flaws, all of our things that we wish people didn't see about us or know about us. And the Dalai Lama was once asked, you know, well, if we're perfect, why do we need to meditate? And he said, well, yeah, you're all perfect just the way you are, but you could all use a little improvement. Okay, so we have to hold that paradox as we're practicing. I'm good, I'm okay, I'm good enough, and I could use a little improvement. But be compassionate with yourself and with your mind as the thoughts come, and they will arise, and they will endure, and they are impermanent, and they will pass away. So we need to be attentive to what's happening outside of us and inside of us, inside of our bodies, inside of our minds. So we begin the meditation just as we begin any other form of Vipassana meditation. We choose an object on which the mind will rest. The standard one is the breath. If you're not breathing, you have other problems, right? So the breath is usually there. So allow the mind to rest on the breath, and sooner or later something is going to come up that will be more salient, that will be more powerful. It will pull the attention naturally, spontaneously. You don't have to think, oh, there's a sound, I better listen. Tension just moves as it will. And the trick, I think, here with uh, mindfulness of impermanence is to turn the attention fully and compassionately to the new object of meditation. It's not an interruption. You're not a bad meditator because a thought has arisen. The mind thinks. That's just what it does. The ears hear the noises. The mind think it's, thinks it's thoughts. Turn the attention to whatever is arising. Notice if there is a feeling tone. 
So feeling tones arise with contact. Whatever the sense door that the perception has come knocking at, there's going to be a feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neither unpleasant nor pleasant. Often the ones that are the most salient are the unpleasant ones. The brain has a slight negativity bias. It's allowed us to stay around on the planet for as long as we've been homo sapiens, okay? So if there isn't a strong negative bias, then the perception will pass away and the attention will return somewhat naturally to the breath. If there's a negative feeling tone or even a strong positive feeling tone like the fragrance of fresh baking bread or on nights when we have refreshments, you get the whiff of the chocolate chip cookies or whatever, you know, and there's a tug at the attention, and then the feeling tone becomes the object of meditation. And as each of these new perceptions takes its place on center stage as the object, the quality of the mind will change a little bit. The texture will change a little bit. This is fairly subtle, and if it isn't immediately present to you when you start it, don't feel like you're doing it wrong takes a little while to play with the practice and a little while to get the mind to settle. So if you're just coming in, you've had a hectic day and you've rushed to get here and traffic was terrible, the mind isn't going to settle down quickly under those circumstances. But if you can come to a Saturday day long here or go to a longer retreat, as the mind becomes more still, this quality of the mind, this texture will become more apparent and it too, in turn, can become an object of the meditation. The tricky part, for me especially anyway, is when thoughts come, often I don't perceive the thought arising in the same way that I perceive an itch arising. If your mind is still enough and your practice is stable enough, the thought starts to arise, and you can notice that. And there was a wonderful instruction from Pema Chodron. When the thought starts to arise, touch the thought like a bubble with a feather. If you catch it when it's just arising, that's often sufficient. And the thought subsides. I wish. Often, the thought arises, it has its own feeling tone, we have a reaction, we have emotions arising, and the train leaves the station. And then, however many seconds or minutes later, we realize, I was supposed to be meditating. Please, take it from my bitter experience, do not judge yourself at that point. That point is when mindfulness has arisen again. Savor that moment. I asked our wonderful teacher this summer, Annie Nugent, what to do with this thoughts during meditation. And she said, don't rush back to the breath too fast. Take a moment to be grateful that mindfulness has arisen again and taking a leaf out of Rick Hansen's guidance in Buddha's brain, 
Take a moment to let it sink into your body. Have a sense that it's sinking into your chest or your back, into your heart. Extend it in time. Savor it for a few seconds. Extend it in space. Allow it to enter the body and become an embodied awareness of the sense of what it feels like to be mindful. And then return the attention to the breath. So it can be a very, very sweet practice. So we've got possibly... uh, When I first started trying this, it felt busy. You know, it it felt like, well, I just want to chill out here and relax, you know, have this sense of connecting with myself and centering and all of these other wonderful things. And that wasn't happening. And I was thinking I was doing it wrong, you know. And when I discovered meditation on impermanence, and this has been a long time coming, ladies and gentlemen, um, I could affirm that what was happening in my mind and body was in fact 100% natural and normal. And by using the attention to go with what was arising, I actually wound up having a better experience of however noisy or distracted the meditation seemed to be. So I was less judgmental around it. It may be that I still had a really speedy, noisy, twitchy, agitated meditation, but I was more calm about it. I was less troubled by that because I was able to sometimes, um, you know, turn the attention to what was arising, the siren, and say, this is it. This is reality. There's a siren. Doesn't matter if I wish there wasn't a siren. Okay? What's the quality of the mind hearing a siren? Are we feeling the aversion? Hate it. Wish it was quiet in here. Or are we just saying, siren, hearing? Okay, feel the difference? Feel the texture? So, when we perceive any sensory object, let me check my timing here. Good, we're on target. When we perceive any sensory object, we not only examine the object of perception, our meditation object, whatever that is, but we also examine the process of perception itself. So the whatever it is hits whatever sense door it's come knocking on, and we perceive the object, and then we perceive the perceiving of the object. I find that noting is a very, very helpful technique for me. My mind really is like an ADHD child. And if I can give it something to focus on, you know, it, it will stay with me a little bit better. So if I, if I use the noting technique when my mind is vibrating, um, it helps me stay in the present. And using the ING words 
are often more helpful to me because I, it, it subtly underscores the process, the arising and enduring and passing away quality. So noting hearing is more helpful to me than noting siren. Um, noting I've got a bad knee and the knee often talks to me. And rather than noting pain or even just discomfort, which is a little more neutral, if I notice specifically what's going on, throbbing, burning, pulsing, if I can give an ING thing to it, um, it lightens me up a bit and keeps me focused on the transitory, the impermanent quality of whatever is, uh, whatever I'm perceiving. I mentioned earlier this, this quality of feeling tone. Um, I, I would encourage that with reservations. Don't go looking for feeling tones, right? So what we're trying to do is maintain a spacious sense of awareness in which perceptions arise. And we're not looking for perceptions. So it's not environmental scanning, right? So when something arises in the space of our awareness that is salient enough and strong enough to pull our attention effortlessly, we're not turning it, it's being pulled by the perception, then if we notice that a feeling tone arises, we can use that as the object of meditation then. So we then don't so much turn the attention, I think I unfortunately use that term, but we um, hold that perception in our attention, in the space of our awareness. If a feeling tone doesn't make itself present to you, don't worry about it. That's fine. And then we've got the object, the the, uh, perception of the object and the feeling tone. And then also... And this one may come in time, it may not be obvious anytime soon. That quality, the, the perception of the quality of the mind. So once a feeling tone has arisen, the mind changes in response to that. And especially... I think it's um, skillful to be aware if there is any um, attraction or aversion in the mind. Um, As I said, the brain seems to have a negative bias. Often we will become aware of aversive reactions or I don't like. Sometimes that will push its way into our awareness earlier or more easily than I do like. Um, So if you become aware of aversion in the mind, see how that affects the mind 
Does that change the quality, the background of the awareness? So all of these changes, they're going from the very gross to the more and more subtle, are impermanent. And as they arise and enter our awareness, then we turn our attention to them. And ideally, there will come with this practice clear seeing, not just a conceptual, yeah, yeah, it's all impermanent, but a gut-level realization, a clear seeing that, wow, it really is all changing. And as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, this clear perception brings about an experience of liberating peace. So we don't have to wait for the big N word, right? We, we can get tastes of this liberating peace all along the path. How many people so far tonight have had at least one thought flit through the head, I'm not doing it right? <laughs> Drop it. <laughs> You're doing it right. Okay, so I wanted to stress, um, although Andrea Fella is going to be giving us the wrap-up and tell us how to bring this into our lives, I wanted to touch on the, the fact that this practice has become very precious to me, and it is not exclusively a sitting-on-the-cushion practice. It is very much a practice I take into my world, my day-to-day existence, and I especially like it when I'm walking by myself and I'm not having a conversation. I'm just walking and I'm aware of things changing. And to, not to crow about it, but to, to give a personal testimonial that this is a path, not purely a fruition practice, um, I had a tremendous experience of this sense of space that Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about and peace. Um, it was on retreat, but I think that perhaps the experience was more intense because of retreat practice. But the fundamental quality of the experience would be accessible. I was in Texas with Shaila and working at it. (laughs) If you've ever been on retreat, you know what I mean. And I was walking, and it was New Year's retreat in Texas, and there were all of these fallen leaves. And some of you know that I'm a real tree hugger, and I know a lot of trees, and I was trying to identify the trees, right? For the first few days, I was going, oh, this this kind of an oak and that kind of an oak. Mostly oaks in that part of Texas. And then... Suddenly, one day, I was walking, and I was just noting. I was noting my footfalls. I was noticing it was freezing. I was noticing the colored leaves. And I was just staying with the moment-to-moment perceptions. And the leaves stopped being leaves, and they were just patches of color with edges and colors. And I was just noticing everything, it was almost an altered state of consciousness. And the perception of the flickeringness of sensations 
was extremely powerful and left me feeling this immense peace. So it's a, it's, if I can do it, you can do it, I swear, <laughs> right? So it's, it's a practice that in less intense moments, I find really comforting, really healing in my day-to-day existence, just to sort of stand back and without judging that it's coming and going, just notice that it's coming and going. So I'd like to share, in closing, um, something from Bhante Gunaratna, Mindfulness in Plain English. Again, I find it very inspiring, and this is my envoi. As meditative mindfulness develops, your whole experience of life changes. Every passing moment stands out as itself. The moments no longer blend together in an unnoticed blur. This is a simplified, rudimentary awareness that is stripped of all extraneous detail. After this perception, you see clearly those moments when you are participating in bare phenomena alone and those moments when you are disturbing phenomena with mental attitudes. You mindfully observe the incessant rise and fall of breath. You watch an endless stream of bodily sensations and movements. You scan the rapid succession of thoughts and feelings, and you sense the rhythm that echoes from the steady march of time. And in the midst of all this ceaseless movement, there is no watcher. There is only watching. In this state of perception, nothing remains the same for two consecutive moments. Everything is seen to be in constant transformation. All things are born, all things grow old and die. There are no exceptions. You awaken to the unceasing changes in your own life. You look around and see everything in flux. Everything, everything, everything. You stand there transfixed, staring at this incessant activity, and your response is wondrous joy. It is all moving, dancing, and full of life. Blessings and enjoy the practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.